Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Giordano. Today I'm interviewing British explorer and filmmaker Reza Pakravan, who has a long and impressive expedition CV that includes crossing the Sahara by bike in record time, traveling the length of the Sahel region of Africa, and attempting to set the world record for fastest bicycle journey from the Arctic Circle to Cape Town, South Africa. In this episode, Reza and I touch on why he left a bougie career in finance to attend film school and how Tintin was a major childhood influence. We also talk about the challenges of crossing some of the world's most dangerous borders south of the Sahara Desert and what he recently discovered during filming of his latest multi-part series called Hidden Frontiers Arabia. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Well, Reza, thank you so much for joining me on the Overland Journal podcast. Um, we're going international today. I'm in Madrid, Spain. So if you hear any traffic noise, I apologize in advance. And you're actually in London. So thanks for joining me. Of course, I'm in my garden shed. So apology for that background noise, which is rain. <laughs> <laughs> typical, typical of typical. London at this time yep. of year. I see a bike in the background. So I'm excited to uh, chat a little <laughs> yeah. bit about that as well. It's my little adventure dungeon, if you like. <laughs> Sweet. I love it. So you have done a lot of stuff. Like you're quite the established explorer and adventurist and have done quite a few trips, like epic trips on bikes and filmed series. Um, maybe just give me your, if you were going to walk into an elevator, give me your elevator pitch. Like, who are you? I know that's a, that's an in-depth question, but yeah, maybe just a little intro to the Overland Journal audience. That'd be great. I always say, uh, you know, when I introduce myself, I always say, well, um, you know, what's your job title? I said, well, 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 depends who you're asking. If you ask my mom, she thinks I'm unemployed. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm an explorer and filmmaker. Um, and, um, you know, how these two intertwine is, is a very simple thing. I make um, films about exploration and grand journeys, uh, which um, has taken me to some of the far-flung corner of the planet, whether behind a camera or in front of a camera. Um, so I, at the beginning of my career, I started uh, doing very long distance endurance journeys. And then as my career started to evolve, um, I became more interested in uh, <clears throat> documenting adventure and exploration with impact. So it, it always has been a purpose-driven um, purpose adventure, uh, something that adds a knowledge uh, using my adventures and exploration as a tool to add a knowledge that otherwise the, the world doesn't know anything about it. Whether, you know, exploring it, an unexplored canyon in search of our ancient past or uh you know entering a sort of a tribal zone and shedding lights on the problems that those tribes are facing um whatever i do has a very specific purpose and a special thanks to kuat racks for their support of this week's podcast their new ibex has landed it's actually overlanded this groundbreaking bed rack is effortlessly handling Substantial loads, both on and off the grid. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, it boasts a ballistic black powder coat made for all the nature you can throw at it. It's available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, and it's equipped with telescoping crossbars. Numerous T-channels and a versatile full and half height configuration right out of the box. This is the Ibex from Kuat. It is engineered for adventure. For more details, please visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bed rack. Gotcha. So you're looking at these stories that are under the radar and uh, maybe haven't been told as in-depth as you would like them exactly. to be. Um, as as yeah. an explorer, I always say uh, explorers are storytellers. They create stories that changes our understanding about the world that we live in. Whether you're, uh, you know, exploring the Arctic, working with a, um, you know, bunch of scientists trying to uh, solve the climate issues, or whether you are, uh, you know, looking at it from an anthropological point of view, or, um, you know, traveling to the places that no one has 
ever traveled uh, to just bring back those stories and share with the rest of the world. That's your effectively your job title. Nice. That's great. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is where you get these ideas from. Right. Definitely. They're not ideas that I wake up in the middle of the night and I think, oh, I have to go to Papua New Guinea tomorrow. It's not like that. Normally I, um, get obsessed with an idea of a region of the world and a, a mystery is something that we don't know much about it. And, um, and I start researching uh, a huge amount of research and development goes through uh, every single travel and films that I'm making. So, um, you know, a huge amount of knowledge acquisition takes place at the beginning, whether through contacts, internet, I'm part of a Royal Geographical Society, uh, Explorers Club, a Scientific Exploration Society. All of these people have a big network of individuals, very well-traveled people with a very established international footprint. So, um, if you like, the first uh, four or five months of my um, sort of a digging is just basically knowledge acquisition as much as I can and then refine that to an idea that I would like to present from that region of the world, this mystery that I want to, to solve. What kinds of um, information do you get from the societies and the clubs? Um, is it documentation or talking to other people that are part of the societies and the clubs? Or what does that usually look like for you? Yeah, a bit of a both. For example, if I'm, um, and also filmmaker, so if I'm about to venture into, um, let's say, Sahelian belt in North Africa, uh, I would go and find people who have uh, extensive knowledge about that place. The paper has been published on uh, that part of the world. The films been made uh, about that part of the world. The journalists have traveled there, um, talking to lots of NGOs who have um, penetrated that region, to, uh, ha can provide me with first-hand information because majority of regions that I'm really working on they're really, really remote. So it requires very specialist knowledge. Very, um, They are mostly very difficult to access. So, you know, they're not stuff that you can find on, online. You know, they are, they are requires a fair amount of digging. Nice. I love that. I love research. So, yeah, you're really speaking my language here. <laughs> Sounds like cool, fun. Yeah. So in terms of, like you've all, you haven't always been an explorer adventurist. Um, so I've heard, um, yeah. So you came from a, a finance background, but before that, I'm curious as a child, did you love, or, or growing up, did you love doing research? Did you love reading about places that were under the radar? Did this stem from childhood or was this something that came later? Sure. Um, I, um, I was born in Iran and uh when i was growing up uh during the uh, sort of a, uh, the beginning of my sort of childhood I, I remember just war and uh you know revolution all that kind of stuff so the country was quite close uh to the rest of the world so all we had available to us my window to the outside world was tintin like a series of tintin book i'm not sure if you remember tintin yeah uh, yeah um uh you know book uh the illustration book written by herge uh, a french uh, sorry the, the belgian writer so um i was reading uh tintin inside out i knew every page of various tintin i was my window to the outside world my mom and dad both worked in television uh, for so many years uh, and uh, you know at the beginning of my career I was traveling with my dad a lot internationally domestically so many different places because he was making documentaries and whenever it was possible he could sort of take me with him I picked up the camera when I was 10 so by age of um, 15 I knew how to edit and those days was not digital it was all actually 16 millimeters film 35 millimeters film I could actually change uh, you know film cans in inside it sort of a black bags and all that kind of stuff which no one remembers those sort of stuff um anyway i got to the age of um sort of 16 17 i think those days we were um um i told to turn around to, told my dad um uh, i've seen your life um that all your life you worked really hard my mom they worked really hard in television for uh, not much money and I, I said i know better i would go and study finance i'll go to london i'll study finance and i'm gonna make bucket loads of money i prove you wrong 
my dad laughed at me. Um, and <laughs> he um, still, he, sorry, was he still in? Uh, were you guys still in Iran at the time, or were you somewhere else where he was doing? Yeah, we were in states actually those days. Um, oh. So yeah, um, and um, I said um, I'm going to go and study finance. So I came to London and studied finance. And uh, just backtrack a little bit. My childhood has always been like lived in the edge of the mountain. So my childhood has always been outdoors, skiing, um, you know, mountain climbing and trekking and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's what you do when you live in the mountains. So um, when I came to to London and um, sort of uh, um, recycled myself into the world of finance, it was a bit of a shock to the system, you know, um, and then entered this uh, very sort of a um, strange world of finance, uh, which was completely different to every fabric of my being. But at the beginning was very attractive. Money was great. Money was coming in. All of a sudden, in two years' time, I paid all my student loans. Those days were glorious days of finance. You know, money, girls, cars, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, excitement, um, and all of a sudden, I could afford everything that I wanted. You know, a single guy in your mid twenties in in London working in finance. You know, what's not to like? Well, fast forward. Um, a few years later, I was an overweight, uh, sort of a chopster sitting in a, um, a corporate office, completely uh, depressed and um, resorting to shitloads of alcohol, if you like, uh, which is the part and parcel of working in finance. Um, that's, that's the only thing that actually makes life bearable. And then one day I was walking over London Bridge and I just told myself, this is not the life that I want to live. Um, and... Um, there was a, through the sort of a, it took me about three years to be able to transform my life to do something that I really wanted to do. Mm. It wasn't a plain sailing. It was very very difficult. For I I you know I from here six figure salary with all those corporate perks and stuff like that. You know lovely apartment in a in a you know best place of best part of town. All of a sudden I became homeless. I spent all my um savings um on going to film school um and uh, you know learn a craft from scratch and i spent about good part of 18 months uh you know couch surfing in people's um sofas um and then yeah um once i got depleted from every single penny i had and got myself into a certain amount of debt finally you know the uh, the result of all the effort that I put through started coming back to me. So where did you go to film school? San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay. So you went back to the U S for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, we often see these success stories or we look at other people's lives and I uh, think it just happens overnight, but a lot of the things that have led up to this moment involve a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of hardship and, you know, maybe people see you on the Discovery Channel and they're like, ooh, that guy, you know, maybe he got here overnight. But it's usually way more in-depth story than that that takes a lot of time. And yeah, so. Yeah, it's a proper grind. Um, you know, you have to dig really deep, um, especially in such a competitive, um, you know, TV landscape as well as, you know, that, you know, the, this sort of lifestyle is pretty cool. I mean, people don't see the, the side that, you know, I'm sitting behind my desk uh, for a long time, you know, coming up with this plan and doing all this research and, you know, probably 20 to 30% of the, uh, uh, my part of my job is in the field, but, you know, it's not just being in the field It's basically be able to sustain that, that disseminating those information to the wider public. For sure. Yep. And then crafting the, the narrative or the story around getting those points out in a specific time period to hold people's attention while they're watching the show, I imagine. But yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, you know, it's a group of people editing, a lot of uh, post-production, you know, writing goes into it, which is absolutely great. I mean, I'm loving it because you live, you relive those moments. And a special thanks to O3 Outdoors for their support of this week's podcast. The world is messy. That's the price every outdoorsman pays for adventure. So when we need to keep things fresh, well, we at O3 Outdoors don't do things halfway. 
we turn to the same technology NASA used to clean the space station and we bring it down to our own frontier. You know the smells, sweat, smoke, and fuel, the smells of a proper adventure, the stuff a true outdoorsman knows firsthand. Our technology here at O3 Outdoors eliminates bacteria and odors on gear or in your home and in your vehicles. Our trucker bags allow you to pack, store, and carry your gear, cleaning it the entire time. Our portable Overlander units fit in any vehicle, home, or RV. It's the highest tech brought to the outdoor experience. Keep your gear fresh from one frontier to another. Thanks, O3 Outdoors. For sure, for sure. That's the fun part. Yeah, you're like, I forgot about that part. <laughs> yeah, cool. Nice. So you finished up film school, and then what happened next? Did you, I'm curious if you went and started expeditioning right away, and did you film the trip, you know, one of the first trips that you did or not, or how did that work out? So uh, when I was still in finance um, before I actually resigned, so I uh, imagine you're sort of institutionalized. You're quite an overweight, uh, you know, office worker uh, with not much confidence about the stuff that you want to do. So you have to start from scratch. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start little. And what I... I thought, okay, what what skill that I have that I can sort of actually offer, um, you know, to all of a sudden, you know, doing grand adventures. I'm not an Arctic explorer. You know, I don't have any genetic, uh, uh, amazing genetic makeup or, you know, I'm not the strongest and fastest and um, toughest. So I looked around the house. I used to do a lot of mountain biking. So, oh, there's a bike. I can do that. Um, maybe I can. There is there is something in there for me. So I started doing um, incrementally. Uh, let's say uh, a day ride, then change to a sort of a weekend ride, and then you combine it with a camping. You get make a weekend out of it. And I started developing my skills of like wild camping and a bit of outdoor stuff. And then I started claw back all the things that I had from childhood. It was all there, and little by little, I. Um, picked up the camera again i become uh, the friend uh, friendly with the camera again and realized oh this device that used to be this big now this tiny you know uh, and you can shoot digital and all that kind of stuff so um and i decided uh, got to the stage that i had a confidence to um you know set off on a big expedition so i decided to cross the sahara desert on a bicycle um i applied to the guinness world record um, they set up a criteria and gave me a time limit and a uh, criteria to do that. So I went and did that journey and that changed my life completely. All of a sudden when I came back and um, I remember the moment that I actually put my key, my keyhole and opened the door, um, opened the door and I th- something just hit my forehead. What's next? And that mm-hmm. was the time that I, got the disease i mean i'm sure you've been there you know you've you've been traveling and you know you that's the that's something really gets you and i thought oh god this is so good um i want to i want to have more of it so then i started bigger journey so when i went to film school and then i did a bigger journey which i crossed the length of the planet from north to south but then i resigned my job i was training for for two years then i sort of uh, took my bike to the northernmost point in Europe and cycled in Norway. And I cycled all the way to Cape Town in record time of 102 and two days. Wow. So Nord Cap, was that Nord Cap? Yeah, to, to Cape Town. Town. Wow. That's intense. Um, That's yeah, amazing. it was really intense. It was really intense, you know, got malaria along the way, you know, food poisoning. And it was a race against time to just get yourself to Cape Town on time. It was an eternal state of torture. Um, but, you know, what? and I was filming the journey um, and mobilized a, a group of people who joined me here and there to, to film the journey. And whatever I learned in film school i put to practice i teamed up with a bunch of people we created this independent television series and we managed to find distribution and sold it um i mean obviously before the the movie was sold the film the series was sold i had to endure a huge amount of physical um sort of financial hardship um so that the being homeless was sort of it was part of that sort of 18 months gap waiting 
and then <coughs> I got a book deal. Um, so uh, this book was uh, sort of a published uh, cap to cape um, by Summersdale, um, which is the UK publisher. And all of a sudden, life changed, and um, I started doing more and more and more, and uh, also getting employed to go and you know film other people's journey and expeditions for like mainstream channels. Nice. So the title of that is Cap, K-A-P-P to Cape. Cap to Cape, yeah. The listeners were interested. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to read it. I've added it to my Goodreads list. I'm very excited. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so you did Cap to Cape. You got your book deal. Get your series out. And then some more additional interest. (laughs) Yeah, that. with more interest, um, did another journey across the Amazon, uh, uh, documenting the uh, environmental crime across the Amazon, um, perpetrated, um, and uh, the, their impact on indigenous people. So I spend a lot of time with uh, people with uh, least amount of contact with the outside world, how their life came to um, danger by um, sort of outside forces, there are cattle ranchers, gold miners, um, you know, um, environmental destruction, um, and so on. Um, so I uh, I spent a huge amount of time in the Amazon, about three months. Um, there are documented um, all of these, and I had a pleasure to travel to the edge of t- edge of the territory of uncontacted tribes, and you know, see things um, very few in the world have ever seen. Um, you know, I met people who have not had any contact with the outside world, um, which actually blew my mind. Um, and then that continued. Um, I did um, another series for uh, Amazon Studios called um, The World's Most Dangerous Borders. Um, and um, another one, um which is um, the hidden frontiers for Discovery Channel. So these are the ones that actually have been in front of a camera. Right. I wanted to ask you about the Amazon trip. Just a one question about what you learned from the tribes that had never been in contact with, I guess, the outside <laughs> world or people from the outside. It was a it was a very interesting experience because. Um, when you see people who don't understand the value of money, they the monetary world that we understand for them is not comprehensible. They have came to contact with outside world because they were in their jungle. All of a sudden, they saw that logger or um, you know poacher that actually using axes and machete and that kind of stuff, the modern goods. They saw a guy rather than you know, putting his hand uh, in the water and just like uh, drinking water like this, all of a sudden you have this device which is called glass. They can put it in the water, in the river, and take your time and drink it. For them, all of a sudden they see these material goods and they want it. So they come to outside world, they want to contact with outside world thinking they can have those goods. Whereas the problem is they don't have any skills to offer the outside world to, to acquire those uh, you know, the, the, the exchange doesn't happen. So they mm-hmm. enter this emotional anxiety. In a lower scale, just think about it. If you live in a tiny little village all your life and then they transfer you right in the middle of New York City, how do you feel? All of a sudden you go, wow, what is this? You feel very overwhelmed. For them, that's like 100 times more. They've never seen electricity. They've never seen modern goods. So... Um, on that basis, they enter this emotional anxiety, and there is no mechanism for these people to um, to feel better about their lives. So, um, yeah, no one knows how to deal with them. Yeah, that's very. It's like the movie Elf. Exactly. In another yeah. world, right? Another world. And then yeah. the skills that you have <laughs> from your own life in that specific region are so specialized to your everyday life that. Yeah, how does it transfer? Other than, I guess, educating others on what your life is like and what your practices are and your traditions and things like that. But I can't imagine coming out to New York City after being in a really, really, really remote place in the 
I mean, I was in um, I was in uh, deep in the Amazon for um, the, talking about the primary forest. I mean, by then when I got there, I, I was there for about three months, and I spent another six weeks um, in a primary forest studying these people, <clears throat> which are pretty much hunter gatherers. They move through the jungle without leaving any trace. Um, I came, uh, expedition finished. I arrived in Lima, um, in Peru. And then my wife came there and um, said, oh, let's go to Machu Picchu. Yeah, let's go to Machu Picchu. <laughs> to Machu Picchu. And it was the biggest shock to the system. I really did not enjoy Machu Picchu. Uh, yeah. All of a sudden, I saw like millions of tourists just pouring down into Machu Picchu and uh, with their cameras and stuff like that. It was a complete shock. You know, in any normal circumstance, I, I would probably enjoy it, but then I was in a completely different mindset. Yeah, that's fair. Even in getting in line for your ticket, I remember just being crushed in, like so many people just everywhere. And yeah, I honestly, yeah, it's it's an experience. It takes away that beauty, doesn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I wanted to skip ahead a little bit and talk about world's most dangerous borders um, and which regions you were in for that series as well where you were filming so if you tell people sahel probably nine out, out of ten they have no idea where it is but it's a is a narrow belt that uh, connects uh, west africa to east africa and is sandwiched between um sahara desert and african savanna um this is a transitional belt uh, starts from senegal goes all the way to somalia and this is a transitional belt between a complete arid North Sahara with a quite a fertile African savanna or African jungle. Um, and uh, because of the, it's, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a completely dry land. It's basically, is a, is a transitional area where, where the, uh, if you like, if the separation between nomadic life and the settlements. So in African sort of a savanna, there are lots of settlements, whereas in Sahara is all nomadic life, uh, Bedouins right. and uh, Tuaregs and all that kind of stuff. So um, my journey, uh, the the title of the series was uh, the world most dangerous borders, and it was about why these borders are the most dangerous. Um, why the Sahelian belt in North Africa is the most dangerous place in the world, and especially within those border areas. Mm. Um, so I started my journey in, I mean, I, it was, I went for two recce's before actually starting the journey. I, I went to, first time I went to Chad, and what I've seen literally blew my mind, which I come to it. But um, I, I've I traveled to, by then, I traveled to about 80 countries around the world, but I've never seen a place like Chad or Niger. Um, these are like poorest countries in the world by far margin. And not only poor, they never they have not been developed in, in many shapes and form. So, um, and especially there are regions that you, when you're traveling there, you feel like you've gone back by a hundred years. Um, so I started my journey in, in Senegal and Senegal is quite a, sort of a stable country and I sort of made my way to um, to Mali Now, as such a spectacular uh, incredibly cultural rich beating heart of Africa beating heart of West Africa is really cultural hub of Africa in terms of music arts whatever you can possibly imagine but the country is in trouble same as the rest of the Sahelian region and there's only one um, a reason to it because the Sahelian belt is getting uh, shrunk is shrinking on a daily basis the desertification the global warming led to the mass desertification and pushing uh, the desert further down so the Sahelian belt is shrinking so a lot of communities in the further north finding themselves their resources are dwindling and they have to migrate to the south further south and mm. those guys in the south uh, of the Sahelian belt, they are they have a minimum amount of resources and they have to all of a sudden share it with these people coming from the north. And that's why there's a climate war, there's devastation, there is poverty. And um, 
and yeah, all these sort of border wars come, is a part and parcel of those. Gotcha. So it's interesting because I feel like we always hear about migration north. <coughs> yeah. But you're saying that there, there's also a migration south. Yeah, really interesting right. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you um, during that um, time period, Overlanders love to talk about border crossing. So I wanted to talk mm. to you a little bit about the logistics um, involved in that project, crossing the world's most dangerous borders for the series and filming and all of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have one, one, one word to describe it, and that's uh, it's nightmare. Okay. The biggest nightmare. Um, I have to say between all those border crossing, it was just one of them was an easy one. I was Senegal to Mali. The rest was the most painful border crossings ever. Uh, to the level that, um, you know, that the worst one was um, crossing to Sudan from Chad. That led us to spend four days in jail. Oh, so I think that's by far the the the, the gnarliest border crossing ever. Was um, that your whole team in jail? Like they sorry? was this a, was it your whole team that was in jail? Yeah, we were all in jail. Filming For four or... days. Yeah, we were we were held by uh, Sudanese intelligence um, services, and uh, we were so basically we were in Chad. Um, which is, uh, you know, itself is a completely different uh, story. But uh, we wanted to get get to Sudan. We were in such remote places before we get to Sudan that we actually didn't know what was going on in the world. While we were, you know, try try to film this incredible, incredibly beautiful tribe in the middle of nowhere in Sudan, a revolution was happening. So by the time we got to the Sudanese border, the government has already been toppled. The, the army took over, and the border that we are we wanted to cross is called uh, Chadian Sudanese border. It's basically the Sudanese side is Darfur, which is uh, a very politically sensitive place. Not a single camera crew over the last twenty years has been able to pass through, and we had a special permission. Wow! So. As we um, got there, we uh, we didn't know what was happening. Um, it was extremely sensitive. We crossed the border. We were taken to um, sort of a, to a barracks. And um, so what are you guys doing here? Oh, we're meeting these tribes. We um, you had an arrangement. Well, there's no arrangement. There's no government. So uh, yeah, hello. Uh, let's go to the barracks. And then uh, th we were handed over to the, to the Sudanese intelligence and then Next thing we know, we were in jail for four days before we kicked out of Darfur and sent to um, Khartoum, the, the capital, for further um, questioning and then kicked Whoa. out of the country. What was the jail experience like? Oh, where, which part of which part of it you want to know? It was it was they were really respectful. I mean, Sudanese were really nice people. Um, the only problem was. Um, the, the 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 sanity um sanitary uh pr problem it was the the toilets were disgusting it was so bad um and it was very close to us so uh the smell was so overpowering that we could not sleep it was like four days of torture i mean the worst part of it was the smell of that toilet <laughs> and i've been to a few really really bad places with like lack of hygiene and bad toilets and stuff like that but this is what this was whole new level it's like torture so my, by toilet. sorry it's like to torture by toilet yeah my um that's a very good way to put it uh, my cameraman got salmonella uh, and he was vomiting and it was it was really really bad experience so f last day once we they put us in a united nation flights and tried to get rid of us and send us to the capital we were so happy and relieved i bet that made any sort of any toilet at that point probably seemed great <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and during wow. that time which was um i was in custody my wife was pregnant back home so <laughs> she didn't hear from me for four days so, oh you know. my goodness <laughs> oh my goodness wow oh wow 
Woof, and you're here to tell the tale. Exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness, wow. Um, that was a hell of a border crossing, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> so were you guys traveling in a vehicle or were you walking over the land borders? Like, did you have to do a temporary import permit? Everybody's passports got checked. Like, how? what did that look like? How many hours did they take? Were you yeah, different? Yeah, uh, so basically you, you start with one, you stop in one country and you enter another country. So you, you enter, um, let's say, by you stop at the border of Chad then from the Sudanese side your fixers and your uh, guides will come and take you they receive you from that side once you clear the custom um, you know they come and take you with their vehicles uh, okay so yeah that makes sense that you'd have a fixer for those uh, situations you, to, you know yeah. otherwise you won't be able to get permits you know all that kind of stuff yeah I mean sure. it was one of the downside of you know my job is unfortunately these days I cannot just Okay, let's pack the bag, look at the, uh, get the visas and um, look at the map and just go there. It's a huge amount of risk assessment. You know, it's lots of red tape. We got to cross and justify to the network that, you know, you're going to come back alive in one piece. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Because your most recent one that I know of, unless you have some other thing that hasn't been launched yet, but the Hidden Frontiers in Arabia is the most recent project right so tell me a little bit about um the logistics that were involved in that and a crew and gear and getting permits and that whole thing i guess the yeah the cole's notes or whatever you want to call them yeah absolutely i mean um we again took took us about a year uh, to put this together and there are not many places in the world left that you can say oh this place is really unexplored or you know people know about everywhere unfortunately saudi arabia just opened its, its door after hundreds of years of being closed to the rest of the world and so we were one of the pioneers uh, in there and there are so many places in saudi arabia that left unexplored, like lava fields or um, a canyon uh, or deserts that people have not been, or caves. And um, through through few, few reckeys and a lot of studies, we just realized, okay, uh, there's an unexplored canyon here. There is uh, there are a few mysteries to to really unlock. You know, for example, in um, Iraqi Kurdistan, there there is this endangered species that thrives within minefields, which is like Persian leopards, uh, which only twenty of them left in Kurdistan. Mm, um, you know they they live within minefields so for us was you know putting these stories together and um you know to really unlock those mysteries um so these are very politically sensitive countries and normally uh they don't you know camera crews that i mean i do mainly mainstream entertainment you know i don't do anything uh of sort of politics or current affairs and that kind of stuff. So, you know, we, we, we create a sort of adventure television. Um, and when we approached those countries to get permits, it was incredibly difficult to get, uh, you know, film permit because all of them thinking that, oh, we want to report on human rights. We want to, um, you know, report on um, sort of women's issues and that kind of stuff, mistreatment of women. And that wasn't the purpose of the show. Um, <clears throat> the, I'm the surprised was... to hear that because Saudi, you know, opening up an F1, being there and the promotion of tourism there has been quite heavy. Um, all the events and concerts and they're really pushing um, international tourism. The moment you go with the, 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 with, the, with, the, with the camera, things changes. Right. Um, if you are going as a tourist, uh, which is very easy, it's you it get a visa great. within yeah. minutes. Um, yes. You know, when you want to go there to film, um, is a huge amount of red tape you have to cross. I mean, they they were really nice and cooperative. And and the rest of the region, you know, just, just getting a drone permit is is a nightmare on its own right. You know, it takes months. Anyhow, we, we got through all of that, but um, these are the boring parts, but that you know, little by little we we, we found so we wanted six stories. The one story was in Iraqi Kurdistan, which was Persian leopard, which was a big mystery. How do we find this uh, endangered, nearly extinct um, species? Two, an unexplored canyon in Saudi Arabia. No one has ever been inside that canyon. 
the potential of people living in a in a canyon in a cave in Oman uh, in a sort of impenetrable canyon system uh, it was a converging canyon system um, which no one could believe that actually human could live there we through the satellite imagery we found the potential existence of human there um, so that was another mystery um, another one was uh, we, we found Oman is one of the driest places in the world and we found a tribe actually that live without any sort of water so we wanted to know oh. how do they do it um, um, and and so on and so forth so these were like a mysteries that we built and you know we, we found no one has ever filmed uh, the dugongs in Persian Gulfs and we were the first camera crew that we actually managed to capture them on camera because they're a very specific uh, breed of dugongs so um yeah, all in all, this was the summary of the different subject that we hit. What is a dugong? Sea cows. Sea cows. Very yeah, very vegetarian, gentle vegetarian mammal. Uh, we spend about a month on, at sea till we're able to, to sort of catch them on camera. Anywhere in the world, you can uh, film dugongs. Very, you can go very close to them. In the Persian Gulf, these breeds, they no one knows anything about them because they're very skittish. They, uh, As soon as they, you get close to them, they escape. Hmm. Very interesting. That's cool. So you need patience, essentially, and, and time. A lot, of trick, a lot of patience, a lot of, uh, you know, using different, we use shipwreck as a cover, you know, so many different tricks to finally we manage to get a glimpse of them. Fascinating. So that was that's obviously one of the episodes on that series, so people <laughs> can, right, yeah. can find out how you did it and uh, yeah, um, exactly everything on that episode. Nice, yeah. very cool. I love that. Very the inquisitive mind, you know, in twenty twenty three now is so important. These things to keep thinking about and get off of Instagram. <laughs> I'm telling myself that as well, you know, and go out and investigate and learn something and inquire and yeah it's so fun super fun i mean our and planet is full of incredible mysteries isn't it and um yeah. it's 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 such a privileged um position to be in to be able to tell those stories and um yeah i absolutely love it it's fantastic i wanted to um also ask you because you've done so many trips by bike uh it looks like you know, various types of bikes from road bikes to fat bikes recently. Um, which bikes have you done on different journeys and do you have a favorite bike? Yeah, I have to say fat bikes definitely not are my favorite, not my favorite. So uh, I use a, a fat bike um, to cross the desert uh, in Saudi Arabia and it was a pain in the ass. It was so hard. It was so heavy. Uh, obviously, we have to deflate the tires to be able to get a bit of bit more friction. Yes. It was so hard on legs and bodies. It was really taxing. Um, and you push really hard and you progress not much. But there was the only way to cross the sand dunes and deserts and uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, there's no other way to, to cross it. Um, for many years, I um, used, used mountain biking. I never used mountain bike for, for travel, but just mountain bike for mount, in the mountains, which is, um, if you look at it as, as a sort of a sport, I absolutely love it. But in terms of traveling, I never uh, forget the times that I had with my expedition bike. Uh, for many years, I've been sponsored by a brand called Koga, which is a Dutch brand, and they make the best travel bikes ever. So I normally travel with fully laden bikes, um, uh, you know, two panniers in the front, two panniers in the back with, with a dry bag, you know, strapped around the back of the bike. Um, you know, I carry normally th like 35 kilos on the bike with all, everything that I need. So I can go really far. Um, you know, I can I can camp wherever, wherever I need to. I'm quite self-sufficient. Um, I really miss that, and I think that was my my one of my best memories. It was, uh, you know, to travel and and think, okay, I've done my you know daily quarter today, and mm -hmm. let's just stop, start a fire, get the stove going, um, 
you know cook whatever i need to cook and uh yeah enjoyed it a bit moment of like silence and and peace yeah those trips seem to be on a tight timeline so did you have a specific amount of kilometers that you had to do per day or miles that you had to do per day yeah i mean i'm I'm not talking about my uh, sort of record-breaking journeys and stuff like that but other than that I've, I've done a fair amount of journeys you know around europe i've done um a fair amount of journeys in nepal india that sort of places um fair amount of bike touring um and i um when i'm looking back uh, those memories are the the best because no time pressure um you know and um, you know you're actually enjoying what you're doing without actually competing against the clock um yeah. and you once you're traveling with the speed of bikes um it's fascinating because you know you 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 look at things in a different way you kind of um it gives you the perspective of how the world sort of have been pulled together uh, you know you you really feel the country and the culture your your requirements are quite basic so you need place to sleep you uh, your life is quite simple you need water to drink and that immediate immediacy that sort of a simpleness immediately you know makes you think about your most basic needs and what we are sharing with a bit 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 people from different culture at least that's a good starting point you arrive in a village with your bikers absolutely hungry there's someone's there to feed you and that's a really good start of a conversation you know you ask for someone that i can can i camp in your in your in your garden and that you know that's all of a sudden the, the, the people don't look at the bikers as threats right right yeah i was going to ask you because in this most recent uh, series you were traveling a little bit more in land cruisers yeah and a little bit on the fat bike so how did your um experience of the journey change because you were in a vehicle versus on a bike so um it was every episode was sort of a standalone so um mm. you know th there were places that you know the the the, the only reason actually we we used bike um, in one of the episodes was we wanted to sort of cover this vast expanse of desert. And as part of the sort of a Saudi Arabia's policy, there's no car allowed other than electric cars. There's no car is allowed in that sort of a particular development uh, part of Saudi Arabia, which is called Neom. Um, yeah, Neom, although yeah. They're, they're, yeah there are construction vehicles and that kind of stuff there but you know as a as a film crew we were not allowed to use uh, any sort of a petrol vehicle on that basis we thought okay what are we going to do we're going to we're going to use bike which we can do really well and we're going to cover this um uh, incredible place with, with our bikes so that was a standalone sort of a bike episode. But the other episodes, you know, we, we have to go to a particular place going from arriving in capital, going to a very, very remote place, getting inside the canyon, rappel or abseil inside the inside the canyon or or explore a cave. So with that, we, we had to use Land Cruiser, which is the default um, vehicle for sort of a Middle East and that part of the world. The white Land Cruiser, that's what you see over there i really like yeah. it actually in yeah. fact we when we wanted to go to one of the caves because we didn't have any anchor point we use the car as our anchor point so yeah we um we wrapped the, the ropes around the car and use that use the car as an anchor when we were descending into a into a sinkhole nice that's great yeah i've heard um just the difference between traveling like on a motorcycle and an enclosed four-wheel drive vehicle versus a bicycle. It's all obviously a very different experience and you're exposed to the elements a lot more and talking to a lot more people when your face is out of the windows and all of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, it's just to echoing what you mentioned, when you arrive in a, in a village or, or a town, if you go with a like you know so on a swanky land cruiser and you know people look at you oh this rich guy has come here he's got an agenda he wants to film you know he wants to i don't know he's got so much money to spend or whatever you're, you're received in a different way whereas when you travel with a bike especially in developing countries uh when you arrive in a village people look at you and think 
oh, this poor guy can't afford the car. You know, he's coming with a bicycle, so we might as well feed this guy um, <laughs> and look after poor, poor bastard. So uh, that's how they sort of receive you. And all of a sudden, they don't look at you as a, they don't look at you as a threat. They look at you as a, in a different way, which I quite like. They're very yeah. curious. Yeah. I love that. I think we also, as travelers or expedition leaders or participants are sometimes like, oh, I wonder, you know, about my own safety in certain places, but we don't necessarily think about, oh, well, what if they are worried about us as a safety concern as well? Like it totally goes both ways. That's that's a really, really valid point. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So good things to think about. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I wanted to bridge the gap between your trips and your daily life um, because I think you have a lot to share and a lot of advice to give or tips and tricks on um, various aspects of life that people can um, bring into their everyday uh, to make planning or life or challenges a little bit easier to overcome. Um, so yeah, how do you use the lessons of travel in your everyday life? So it could be overcoming self-doubt. It could be overcoming conflict, making confident decisions, uh, things like that. Um, I mean, if I'm, I can, I can, you know, I can list all of that for you, but that, that's not a sincere answer. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm actually a, I'm actually a one that really struggles with normal life. And that's a very honest, heartfelt answer because, you know, I'm, uh, I spend the last um, 14 years of my life traveling nonstop. Uh, I was away from the UK on filming trips about four to five months a, a year. I was constantly on the road, uh, you know, coming from, you know, Papua New Guinea, pack my bag. Three days later, I was in the Arctic or going to the, to the Amazon or the Andes or you know so so far and so on and so forth but um you know i really struggled with mundane and obviously yeah. i i established that you know my i cannot be on the road uh as much as i want to um especially you know i'm, I'm running a small company uh i have a little one now um and that mundane uh grind it's I mean, as much as I enjoy my little one, I, I love my family, but it's hard. It's, it's a real struggle. So, you know, as um, to make that a little bit easier, I do a lot of rock climbing, um, you know, try to uh, try to, you know, get really some adrenaline in, in sort of a, that uh, that side. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I get to travel quite a lot, but not as much as I want to. Right, right. Still, I have that hunger and, and passion for, you know, seeing those places. And, you know, I, um, I'm not sure if you know Sir Richard Burton. Um, he's, he was my inspirational hero. I mean, I, I know I read all his books and I absolutely, you know, adore this man. And, you know, his famous quote said, uh, you know, uh, of the gladdest moments in human life is a departure up in a distant journey into the unknown, uh, unknown lands. And, you know, this quote stayed with me always. And, you know, the moment that, um, you know, I sit on that plane, that, that's sort of the happiest, you know, moment of my life, you know, that's a, um, I can't say it's the happiest moment of my life, but one of the happiest moments of my life. You know, I'm, I'm just love that butterflies in my belly, you know, traveling. Absolutely. Yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, all resilience and, you know, all that kind of stuff is in there. But th at the same time, there is a struggle that I want to be honest and, you know, share with your audience. Absolutely. And I think... We all, as a travelers, we're all struggling with normal lives. I'm pretty sure whoever listened to you, uh, to your podcast, when they come back, normal life they are struggling with uh with the mundane and normality of life yeah it's definitely a yin and yang situation i think and do you ever feel like you get oversaturated uh, you know have you ever been like i probably need just a just a sec to go home and just really like think and reflect on what i've seen and what i've learned and what i've absorbed i'm a little overwhelmed and i i just want to like let it sink in a little bit or do you find that with the time periods that you're gone, that doesn't really happen? 
No, it does. I mean, uh, when I was, uh, you know, I could do um, sort of a long journey. It's like being on the road for like, you know, four months, um, three months. You know, towards the end of it, you're really tired of traveling and you want to, you really appreciate being stationary in one place. But yeah. this doesn't happen these days because most of my trip is because of work. And, uh, you know, work is a very sort of a blur line between work and um, work and travel. Um, so I travel for two sort of all these incredible places for work and the work is very scheduled so when you go there uh, you have to meet this and that and that and you have to you know film this and that um, you know uh, it's quite a sort of a regimented full-on schedule so three weeks later four weeks later you have to come back home so that doesn't happen as much these days gotcha what is your role? So you're in front of the camera, obviously you're hosting and you're researching. Are you doing, are you directing as well? Like what are your other roles that you're undertaking? So I'm a producer, uh, I'm a producer. So about 60% uh, of the time I produce um, uh, and direct uh, and I can shoot as well. But uh, you know, uh, I by default, I produce uh, like 90, you know, 60% of the time and 40% of the time, you know, if the networks really want me to be in front of a camera, I wouldn't say no. Right. Because it's cool. Yeah, you like it. I like it. I'm, you know, call it uh, my life. My, my wife um, um, say, you know, all the presenters are attention seekers, you know, call me attention <laughs> seekers. I can live with that. No problem. <laughs> That's so funny. How many people are on your team or does it depend? Uh, you know, we, um, including locals. I mean, the, in, in the last um, series that we produced, uh, we clocked to, we, lim we reached the limit of 22. At certain parts, we were uh, six or seven. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in being expeditions and, and uh, travel film crews that we were like three or four. Right. Okay. Three has been the minimum. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Nice. Nice. Hmm. My, my favorite number is three. Traveling with a crew of three, which doesn't happen, uh, is a really good balance. I think two, you get bored of each other very quickly. <laughs> but three is kind of a good dynamic. And you all, I'm assuming, kind of share roles. Like you have to be multi-talented or... Yeah, exactly. All the all, all the sort of line blares. Um, you know, um, you know the presenter carried tripod. You know the the director uh, rely on a producer. Producer rely on a director. Um, you know, but you know in in sort of a more sophisticated, more sort of a bigger scale shoots like in Oman, for example, we had a drone pilot, a sound man, um, a, a a logistic manager, a, a camp expert, a DIT, which is like guys who are doing all the backups <laughs> two cameramen a director a producer production manager loads of people on set you know because wow. there was quite um you know big scale and loads of people on safety and all of that because we were doing something really really risky Ooh, cliffhanger very cool uh what is your favorite piece of kit or do you, is there something that you bring on every single trip? Um, I um, my Osprey uh, backpack. It's something that I would love to carry. I mean, it's the best piece of uh, backpack I've ever had, and always carried with me. But um, I always carry dry bags. Um, I mean, they're they're, they're multi-purpose. I I absolutely love it. Uh, and uh, you know, I can put my I can use it as a water container. I can use it as a um, storage. I can uh, put it, put my all my dirty clothes in it. Um, you know, multi multi purpose and lightweight. <laughs> very lightweight, obviously. So very lightweight. I mean, dry bags are are quite small. I mean, they come from. I don't have one handy. I'll show it to you, but um, they come in different sizes. So um, they're they're a piece of plastic. Effectively, they're so small. And, and lightweight so they can they can do a lot with them that's awesome i love a good dry bag too yeah. just protecting against the elements like mud and rain and snow but then also <laughs> you can have your stuff inside of it i love your idea about transporting water 
as well. You can yeah. basically you can you can put all the underwear, socks, and everything into one, and then your top tops into one, all your sort of bottoms into another, accessories into one. So your your bag is very tidy. So it's very easy to access everything and one for your uh, sort of a uh, wet bag, uh, wet clothes. So yeah, I love a good cool. organized bag, especially for hiking. So good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So another question for you. This is one that we ask quite frequently on this podcast. Is what your what is your favorite book? Sorry, said it again. Oh, favorite book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first footstep in East Africa by Richard Burton. Ah, uh, Richard Burton. I thought it yeah. probably would be him. Nice. What is it about that book that makes it your favorite? I mean, the rawness of the travel those days. I mean, it's uh, you know when he traveled um, and uh, to 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 the wilderness of East Africa. Um, you know, with bare minimum, he was a linguist. So he could speak so many languages, but he couldn't, those days he couldn't speak any uh, African languages. He went and found a lake in, um, he was funded by Royal Geographical Society in the UK. And, you know, nowadays, you know, doing that trip is not a big deal, but those days, like first footstep of, of white man going to this um, sort of African wilderness in search of a particular lake without any particular map or much knowledge, with all those diseases, malaria, you know how do you how do you navigate those are tough men um but he was an incredible individual awesome i was gonna ask you i have a book that i just read uh by barbara toy i don't know if you've heard of her and the listeners on the podcast are probably gonna get tired of me talking about her but she drove her land rover all over the world in the 50s and 60s 70s and she went um to mount wani wani I believe that is in Ethiopia. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but there is Gweni. Gweni. Um... With a W. <coughs> Mount Weni in Ethiopia. Mm. But apparently, um, uh, heirs to the imperial throne were imprisoned, often for life at the top. And there's this wow. section of the book where... And I don't want to give it away just in case people read it. But there's a helicopter involved and she goes from the helicopter onto this top of this mountain, <coughs> like some Lara Croft situation. Um, so I just love, it's kind of like she was the first person in a really, 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 really long time to be at the top um, because it wasn't accessible by just hiking up. And so I think oh. there's a lot of nostalgia and, and a lot of, respect that I have for explorers of the past and these historical trips yeah. that are just, I just love, I just love reading about the history of travel and expeditions. And it's also interesting and inspiring. It was, it was quite different those days, wasn't it? It was the, about effectively going to new places. Um, these days it's, it's quite different. It's, it's not about just going to new places is, What's your take on those places that you travel? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really wise thing to say. Yeah. What's your take on it? Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much Reza, for coming on the Overland Journal podcast. This has been so fascinating. Um, I wanted to just wrap it up by asking you if there's anything in the works that we should keep an eye out for, any projects on the way that you can actually speak about um at the moment so basically i was um um i was told by discovery channel that the second season of hidden frontiers has been um sort of commissioned so um oh, yay. congrats thank you so we're looking into um sort of a couple of different regions um that's that's what i'm i cannot disclose to, to whether it's going to be in asia or the us uh, likely to be the us um the second season we are looking into it at the moment uh, and yeah uh, hopefully um i should be able to share more um soon and um really enjoy this uh, conversation thank you so much for having me on on the show yeah, anytime. Thanks for being here and taking the time. And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing where you go next and what you discover and uncover. And uh, if anybody wants to find you online, 
or watch any of the series, uh, where can they find you? Um, sure. So my uh, series on um, on a catch up uh, TV on Discovery at the moment. So Discovery Go, they can they can go and um, uh, see them. Um, in the UK, I've got a couple of series on Amazon Prime. In uh, Europe, I have uh, one series on Netflix, uh, which is called Cap to Cave. If you are in Spain, you can you can watch it um, if you're there. Um, and uh, yeah, these are for, these are for streamers. And uh, Hidden Frontiers is just about to hit various screens around the world. So the broadcast in the US has finished. So now it's doing its uh, sort of a world tour, if you like. Fantastic, fantastic. And then you've got your book, Cap to Cape. And uh, yes. are there any social media platforms or? Yeah, my, my website is rezapakravan.com. Social medias are all Reza Pakravan. Fantastic. I'm in a bit of an Instagram break at the moment, so I haven't posted for a while. Um, Love it. I'm doing a bit of a uh, Insta- uh, social media cleansing, if you like. Fantastic stuff. Awesome. Well, all right, thanks wonderful. again. Thank it's you, Ashley. Thank you. And thank you uh, to the Overland Journal podcast listeners for tuning into another episode. And we will see you next time. Thanks.